It's time to be all that you can be in 23, starting with a cold plunge to get a natural boost in energy. Focus, discipline, and resilience. The plunge can provide you with all that brilliance. This is the ultimate home cold water therapy experience. A sleek, slick, custom-designed unit that gives you ready access to a cold bath of clean, filtered, circulating water that you can set to your desired temperature. Don't fool around lugging bags of ice from the supermarket for once-in-a-while action. Get the plunge so you will actually stick with your protocol and enjoy it. Visit at thecoldplunge.com to learn all about this sensational product and the benefits of therapeutic cold water exposure. They'll deliver a plunge to your home for free, and then you have easy, simple setup, regular plug-in, and you're off and running. I set mine to 39. I don't spend a lot of time, but the experience is prime, and I'm focused and energized for a fantastic day and more resilient against all other forms of stress in life. Take the plunge, people, and also check out their new Rebounder mini trampoline to pair with plunging and optimize lymphatic function. It's all at thecoldplunge.com, and you can't lose with their generous 30-day money-back guarantee and special discount for BRAD podcast listeners using the code BRAD, thecoldplunge.com. Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Da, 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 da. It's time for the Primal Endurance Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hi, listeners. How are you? Brad Kearns here. You know we are uh, switching our publication of the Endurance podcast over to the Primal Blueprint channel. So all the previous shows, the 100-plus shows, are going to live forever, right? All digital content lives forever, I think, these days on the Primal Endurance podcast channel that you can find on your podcast providers. But future shows will go on to the crowded but extremely interesting and diverse content published on the Primal Blueprint podcasts. So thanks for being part of the community and listening to all the great shows over the years on the Endurance channel. And now as you navigate through that subscription to that podcast, the Primal Blueprint podcast, you'll have a weekly show from L. Russ on all matters of healthy ancestral living with wonderful guests, great interviews. We'll have a weekly show dedicated to keto that I usually host along with Lindsay Taylor and other people. And then we'll have a weekly show dedicated to endurance. So pretty easy. They'll all be labeled accordingly. And thanks for uh, jumping over there to continue getting this content dedicated to promoting the primal approach to endurance training, a healthy, balanced approach instead of the chronic approach. And oh man, it seems like we're making a little progress as a community where at least I'm hearing the concepts discussed and considered by longtime athletes where we're toning down our obsession with mileage, with consistency, and looking at these uh, other training performance recovery modalities and the importance of them in the big picture of becoming a competent endurance athlete, particularly the introduction of properly structured strength training 
uh, sprinting, things like that. And I've talked on previous shows about my fascination or my transition from uh, a typical sprint workout, which might be uh, labeled as HIT, high intensity interval training, uh, over to uh, an evolved concept that was shared with me by Craig Marker on our show. So go look for that uh, broadcast, podcast. Uh, strong first, Craig Marker, and he talks about this concept of high-intensity repeat training. So when I do high-intensity sprint efforts, I make sure that these performances are of extremely high quality by, of course, being rested and motivated and properly energized before I even attempt such a workout. And that includes uh, pulling the plug on a planned workout uh, after the warm-up period or after uh, the first effort or something like that when I'm just not feeling right. So I have only great sprint workouts because I'm rested and motivated to perform. And then after I perform a short effort, I take a complete recovery period of uh, a minute and a half, maybe two minutes where previously, because of my endurance nature and endurance mentality, I would blast a sprint and then recover very briefly and go again. And I could perform just fine, but after the accumulated effect of doing four to six sprints with short recovery, uh, the workout is pretty taxing, it's pretty fatiguing, and it takes longer to recover from. There's a greater stress impact. Conversely, if you were to just kind of cool off, calm the brain down, catch your breathing, recalibrate, uh, pace around, and get ready to deliver an, another a successive effort of consistent quality of similar quality to the first one because you have achieved sufficient rest. And this concept also carries over into the weight room where you're doing uh, sets of deadlifts, for example. And this is also conveyed in the, uh, or honored in the maximum sustained power commentary in the book Primal Endurance, the training concept devised by Jacques Devore, who's a, a competitive cyclist and definitely, um, uh, attuned to the needs of the endurance athlete. He trained Dave Zabriskie in his final year as a professional cyclist and got him into some great uh, workout performances, uh, doing maximum sustained power and getting him strong in the gym rather than just pedaling miles and miles. Uh, in any case, what we're going for is a consistent quality of effort rather than a draining, fatiguing workout, which by definition almost, an interval session is, right? If you're going to do, we used to do six times three minutes back in the old days with a 30-second rest period uh, when we're out there running on the trails, uh, usually on an uphill trail. So most of the efforts would be uphill, you know, climbing up to uh, a, a top of a mountain or something. And the first three minutes is definitely easier, less perceived exertion than the last one when you're fried. But in this concept of high-intensity repeat training, especially when you're doing uh, the the super high intensity sprints, we want to just take it easy and have a longer waiting period between efforts so that you fully recover from it and the overall stress effect of the workout uh, is minimized. So what you're getting is A, faster recovery time, less stress, and B, you're performing better. You're throwing down a faster time. If I were to time myself, sometimes I do at 200 meters, uh, usually I'm doing 100 meter sprints. Um, you're getting faster times, better performance, more explosiveness, and that is the energy systems that you're trying to train to complement all your hard work as an aerobic athlete. Okay, so there's a little plug for high-intensity repeat training. Uh, 
go listen to that show. What else is on my mind this morning was my awesome consultation with Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. Go see what those guys are doing over there. We've had Dr. Tommy Wood and Chris Kelly on the show uh, numerous times. The wonderful, comprehensive uh, peak performance wellness health consulting service where they put you through all kinds of battery of tests and consult with you, uh, give you the supplements you need, the dietary prescriptions, and get you all the way back to health guaranteed. And they also have a nice little, um, it's a quiz you can take when you land on their website for free, and it will predict some of the potential issues you have just from your answers on the quiz. And that's the software background of Chris Kelly, where he's working with these algorithms and uh, guessing, predicting that if you say that you're really tired in the afternoon and sleepy, but you feel great late at night, that's a symptom of adrenal dysfunction. So you can do an expensive blood test or you can answer that question. And all this stuff is rolled into these sophisticated databases. Pretty fun stuff. So you take this free quiz and we're probably going to guess that you'll come out with some measure of gut dysfunction because it's so prevalent these days. It's become the hottest health topic in ancestral world and progressive health circles. People, everyone talking about gut health now, where what, maybe three years ago, you never even heard the term gut microbiome or gut health or leaky gut syndrome. So now the awareness is flourishing, but I think a lot of us are walking around with some level of gut dysfunction, not even knowing it. Myself included, and I will date back to uh, summer of 2015 when I had these surgical ordeals, these health ordeals, uh, a ruptured appendix, emergency surgery, uh, many days of IV antibiotics, complications after and ensuing surgeries, uh, three surgeries on my kidneys, trying to find out why I was peeing blood for three months straight. So it was an ordeal like many of us uh, experience in life or suffer through, a lot of antibiotics dosing up. And it took me a couple years of devoted effort to eat really, really clean, healthy, high probiotic foods, take an assortment of supplements, and I was feeling adverse symptoms for a long time and finally able to clear them up uh, with a ton of probiotic consumption and extreme attention to healthy eating, zero tolerance for any of those uh, gut-unfriendly foods such as gluten, sugar, uh, refined vegetable oils. However, during this time period, I wasn't in the hospital uh, getting hooked up to uh, machines or laying in bed with uh, terrible gut pain. It was just a mild, annoying uh, recurring symptoms, especially in conjunction with exercise that I identified as a problem. And it was affecting my energy, my workout performance, my recovery at some subclinical level where I could just say, yeah, you know, not that great. Um, takes me a while to recover from sprint workouts. Uh, all these things that I'm starting to accept as normal or maybe blame on my advancing age were very likely attributed to some problems in the gut that needed uh, extreme attention. So why I'm saying this especially to you as an endurance athlete is it's pretty prevalent, especially among uh, endurance athletes, because when we 
uh, exercise for a sustained period of time, basically, uh, we invite leaky gut to occur due to the elevated body temperature, the attempt to uh, process nutrients while our digestive system is not working well. So we're in sort of a leaky gut condition while we're doing those long bike rides in the heat or those long runs or what have you. So the elevated body temperature, the sustained exercise is a big challenge to your digestive tract. I'll bet many of us can reference or nod our heads thinking how the digestive tract is the first area to break down often for endurance athletes. That's where you first get the symptoms uh, that you're falling apart and plunging into a fatigue spiral. I know that was the case for me when I was racing on the pro circuit, uh, talking with Mike Pig, who had gut problems for many years. He traced it back to um, swimming in China and getting Giardia in a lake there. Uh, but it was a constant battle, and that was the first thing that went. Not his shoulder from swimming 25,000 yards a week, not his knees from bicycling for dozens of hours and all that kind of heavy training, but rather the digestive tract. So pay close attention to that. Here's a plug for cleaning up your diet even more than you can now. I know we hand out free passes to ourselves all the time to um, go and enjoy indulgences because we burn so many calories, but there's an argument for the endurance athlete to be even more strict than the average person sitting next to you in one cube over where we don't want to introduce these nutrient deficient foods that have an inflammatory and an oxidative stress response when you consume them. So you get home from your hard workout, you're already inflamed, uh, the free radicals are cooking from all the uh, high energy expenditure, and then you go uh, pour yourself uh, a high sugar liquid or treat yourself in some other manner a few hours later, and you're just exacerbating the inflammation, the oxidative stress, and prolonging your recovery time. So the endurance scene should be filled with beautiful, delicious, colorful salads, nutrient-dense foods, and trying to stay away from uh, the bad stuff that doesn't contribute anything and often pulls away, okay, especially as it relates to gut health. So we want to go make a big effort to consume more bone broth, great for gut health, all the high probiotic foods, sauerkraut, pickles, kimchi, yogurt, kefir, uh, Primal makes a good probiotic. You can find that right on the website, primalblueprint.com. I've been using this interesting liquid probiotic called Flourish, and I would really check that out because my consumption of that correlated with uh, getting out of this gut complaint mode that was carrying on for a couple years and feeling perfect with my gut health. So I feel that's a really strong product. I also uh, would buy an assortment of other brands and just mix and match what I was putting into my body on the probiotic shelf at the health food store. And then finally, huge plug for this, uh, I've been making my own kombucha for about a year and a half now, I believe. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay Taylor, for hooking me up with my first SCOBY, S-C-O-B-Y. That is the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast that is your starter to get going in the wonderful world of kombucha manufacturing. So, oh my gosh, I got the SCOBY, got the big gallon jar, a SCOBY and some starter liquid. That would be the kombucha from the person that gave you the SCOBY. And oh my gosh, it's so fun. I feel like a gardener, like a green thumb, which I'm not. I don't have a lot of plant life going and I've never been super successful growing my tomatoes or my 
lemon tree or bougainvillea or what have you. But when I get this kombucha going and it's fermenting over 11 to 14 day period, and then uh, eventually I can pour myself a delicious drink. I know it started as this disgustingly sweet, sugary black tea, and now I've actually created something. Something has grown in my kitchen. It's so much fun. The sense of satisfaction of making your own food right there. So basically, you make a very sweet black tea, and you drop the scoby in, and magically, 14 days later, it ferments into kombucha. And then you have this wonderful second step called the second fermentation, where you can flavor your kombucha, as they do with the assorted flavors that you see at the store, and get a little taste of your favorite herbal teas, or you can throw some fruit juice in there, you can throw some ginger in there, all kinds of uh, opportunities to get creative and then bottle this stuff up and drink it. So my hobby has enabled me to drink kombucha in mass quantities. I suppose I could buy uh, store-bought means, but this stuff starts to get pretty expensive. You know, it's kind of annoying uh, when you're paying three thirty-nine for a tiny little drink that you could kill on your way from uh, the cash register to the parking lot. So I am now brewing to the tune of three gallons at a time. And I actually have some going at my parents' house in LA where I visit a lot. So I have two gallons going down there. So I will be drinking um, three gallons of kombucha every two to three weeks. That allows me to basically cut every time I drink water, I cut uh, maybe two-thirds water, one-third kombucha. And also when you're making it at home, you don't have to have that uh, sort of concerning level of sugar content that you do when you have store-bought brands because they are pumping a lot of flavoring in after the actual fermentation process has occurred because real kombucha will ferment out to where you're only drinking a couple few grams of sugar uh, in a 12-ounce serving, let's say. But when you look at the label in the store, and some of those labels have two servings per container, 30 calories, 35 calories, 40 calories per serving. So you're getting 80 calories of sugar in a 16-ounce container. That means they have thrown in some extra grape flavoring or whatever exotic flavor they're displaying on the front. They've thrown that in after the fact along with the extra carbonation because it's pretty tough to get anything more than a tiny bit of carbonation when you're doing it at home. So real kombucha, very low in sugar. Uh, the books from the kombucha experts uh, assert that the sugar is very easy to digest and does not spike blood sugar like normal uh, squirt and table sugar into your Starbucks drink. So big fan of that. And I think that's really helped contribute to my healing along with uh, healthy eating and supplementing. Okay, we're hitting off some interesting checkpoints here. Oh, and my consultation with Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive came up with some interesting information. I just thought I'd share it with you and maybe you can see some relevance because we're trying to all optimize the best way to eat. There's so much controversy and differences of opinion, especially the role of carbohydrates when we're trying to sustain a low carbohydrate lifestyle pattern. But then we have ambitious performance goals and my blood work came out uh, most things were pretty good, especially happy to see the testosterone up there in the high percentiles. Uh, but I had low protein, 
very low triglycerides in the 30s. My HDL was uh, over 60, and we talk often in the primal community about the ambition to focus on your triglycerides to HDL ratio as your key uh, heart disease risk factor metric. And you want to strive to get those at one-to-one or better. In other words, you want your triglycerides even with your HDL, whereby uh, in normal standard American diet, heart disease patterns, we're seeing people with triglycerides over 150. So most doctors want to see you under 150 with your triglycerides. And that's a big goal for a lot of people that eat poorly. And then we want to see HDL uh, at least over 40 as a threshold. And some people are lower than that. Um, So you can get that HDL creeping up, creeping up with good healthy eating habits and exercise habits. And then bumping that triglyceride down by getting rid of the processed sugars and grains in your diet. And hopefully they'll meet somewhere. Maybe you'll have uh, triglycerides coming down to uh, 72 and your HDL getting up to 50 or 60. That's a really healthy person identifying that way. Uh, Dr. Ron Sinha puts that triglyceride threshold down at 100. So he wants to see patients under 100. Forget about the 150 because we're talking averages with such an unhealthy population. So I would strive for one-to-one ratio for all of you listening to make sure that your your heart disease risk factors are good. But then, uh, but then here I am on the other end of the spectrum where there, yes, can be a concern that your triglycerides are too low. And it's a indicator that maybe I'm not consuming enough healthy calories to sustain my fitness ambitions, my workout regimen, combined with low protein, of course, uh, could indicate that I'm in uh, from time to time or more frequently than I want to be in a catabolic state. Uh, same with my low white blood cell count and my occasionally readings of glucose that might be considered a little high for someone who eats a low carb slash ketogenic diet. Uh, my glucose came in at 100 and other blood tests, it's coming at 110. It frequently comes in in the 80s, the low 80s to mid 80s when I'm testing at home. So I guess it depends on the day. But when this particular blood test came through with a glucose of 100, uh, triglycerides of 33 uh, in comparison to HDL of 60 something, 67. So I was not a heart disease candidate, but I'm looking for other uh, peak performance and energy factors. And that whole picture there uh, starts to look um, like I could benefit from an experiment of consuming more food, more healthy, nutritious food, and possibly seeing those triglycerides elevate maybe up into the range of my HDL. Makes sense what I'm talking about? Uh, I think we have to also uh, use the qualifier that if you're trying to drop excess body fat and you're working really hard on exercising and limiting your carbohydrate intake, you are on a good path. But if you're struggling or hit a plateau, there sometimes is an occasion where you could increase your intake of healthy, nutritious foods, give yourself an energy boost and a recovery boost, thereby being able to perform more exercise, especially exercise specific to sending the gene signals to build lean muscle and drop body fat, such as the high intensity stuff, the sprinting that I describe, and get to the problem, solve the problem uh, in an indirect manner. Uh, I will say that since I started eating more calories on September 1st, 2017, I experienced an explosion in energy, peak performance, and faster recovery times than my previous life, where I was, you know, strict and deep into keto while I was researching the book with Mark Sisson and 
also trying to do these ambitious workouts, not doing them correctly, doing the uh, short rest, high fatigue factor on my sprints. And it all combined to kind of slow me down a bit as I uh, relate. In other words, there was no big complaints. I could still perform these great workouts, but it might have taken five to seven days to recover instead of three to six days. Okay, so don't be afraid to especially find the nutrient-dense foods to include in your diet, eat them liberally, not worry about counting calories. As we know, this is a flawed and dated mindset. Uh, the calories you burn during exercise, by and large, do not contribute directly to your fat reduction goals. It's more about optimizing your diet and optimizing your hormone signals. So staying away from chronic patterns that cause uh, muscle catabolism and also inhibit fat metabolism so that you're more likely to store the calories you eat as fat rather than burn them. And you're more likely to have carbohydrate cravings that cause you to overeat. Whew. How's that for a monologue? We got a lot of stuff. <laughs> we got a lot of stuff into play. Let's take a deep breath and go look at some questions and comments that came in. Uh, oh, first, how about a success story? I know we don't read enough of those on the show. We're always trying to solve problems and address people's issues, see if you can relate to them. But also people are doing great stuff. And one of them is Morgan Williams. Thanks for putting together such a great program. I first got introduced by an old training partner to Primal Endurance. Uh, I was complaining about all the athletes overtraining and not heeding the great advice of you guys and Phil Maffetone and others. So it's a breath of fresh air to see all this content coming out with the course, the Primal Endurance Mastery course, uh, the podcasts, audiobooks. Okay, uh, there's more to this story. I was the coach and uh, coach educator for the British Triathlon Federation and also working with private clients. And I fell into that classic unfit coach trap. I was too busy, busy getting everyone else lean and fast and ignoring my own health. Lo and behold, I suffered an arrhythmia due to being overweight, unhealthy diet and very stressed in personal life. The arrhythmia led to heart failure, and the next thing I know, I'm in the local ER being defibbed back from the brink. After a few months of recovery, I dug out the Primal Endurance book and started my own primal journey. Now I'm 20 kilograms lighter. That's 44 pounds, people. My heart function is restored. I'm trying to get off meds soon. My cholesterol is down uh, quite significantly, and I'm back training. My math running is doing great. I'm now able to run six miles at just under 10 minutes a mile at a heart rate of 127. I'm 43 years old, but I subtract 10 for the medications and the illness. Ding, ding, ding. Take special note. Hit rewind. Play that again. So here he is honoring the Maffetone formula of chopping a whopping 10 beats off his heart rate because of his recent uh, surgical uh, experience and performing great and getting back into shape, even though he had to cut off so many beats. Wow. Imagine if you did all your workouts at 127 for a while and allowed your body to build gradually without interruption from overstress and chronic patterns. Great success story. He sent some cool before and after pics. Uh, it's such an amazing journey. All my clients are buying into it now. They've seen the change in me. They've recently completed the Primal Health Coach certification. I'm going to be your biggest brand ambassador here in the UK. Thanks again. Uh, right on, Morgan Williams. Thank you for writing. 
Here's Lisa, 48 years old, been following the math for several months and seeing limited results. I just had a VO2 max test performed on my, on a treadmill and my aerobic threshold is five beats higher than my 180 minus age. Should I continue to use 180 minus age or the aerobic threshold number based on the VO2 test? Uh, she had a superior VO2 result. So she's a fit person wanting to add five beats to her math. We've dealt with this question for a long time. Now, Five beats is not a, a, a tremendous amount. It's not going to make or break your life, I don't think. Uh, but we have tremendous support and data and information from the world's leading experts that you're doing just fine to err on the conservative side when it comes to tracking your maximum aerobic heart rate and performing at that level or below during workouts. And I'm a big advocate for being conservative about that. You can read the lengthy sidebar in Primal Endurance where I talk about uh, giving myself a few extra beats when I return to training after a long uh uh, hiatus, uh, you know, 20 years of not really serious endurance training from uh, the time of retiring from professional competition and then getting back into speed golf and putting in some significant miles. And I had my beeper alarm set too high because I was going off of old memories when I was training at 155 for my maximum aerobic heart rate. And I dug myself a really nice overtraining hole. And I believe that some of the health problems I sustained were directly uh, attributed to overly stressful work workout patterns, trying to squeeze a few more beats out of math and run at slightly too stressful of a heart rate day after day after day. So Lisa, take it easy. Um, I would say that your limited results after doing math for several months can uh, very likely lead to breakthroughs in the future where you have nice fitness breakthroughs, especially when if you've been uh, devotedly keeping your heart rate low and building an aerobic base. Yes, you can throw in some high intensity workouts, uh, such as races, time trials, or sprint workouts, and that will stimulate fitness breakthroughs back at your aerobic heart rates once in a while. A little goes a long way. Okay. So when we're jumping into, uh, the, uh, what do we call it? The intensity phase. Uh, in the primal endurance periodization program, this stuff is going to bump up your fitness very quickly and very significantly if you do it correctly. If you overdo it for six weeks, because now finally you have permission to train hard. So you're going to go hard three times a week and do this workout and that workout. And oh, try to sustain some of your aerobic base by still putting in those long hours. That's going to be, uh, a high risk of breakdown, burnout, illness and injury. Okay. So uh, a little bit. Let's say one fast bike ride in a week's time where you go out there and do a beautiful time trial. That's plenty to get you really, really fit if you get a good string of those going over time without uh, breakdown or backsliding. Marianne uh, says, I just started trying heart rate training. I'm far from fast, but after a few weeks, I'm slower than when I started. Is this normal? Uh, after a few weeks, I'd say anything is normal. And nothing is of concern, right? You're just a few weeks in. So uh, right back, Marianne, let me know if I was accurate uh, in that you're going to have some down periods or a succession of workouts where you're going slower than previous workouts. And there's so many other stress factors in life that um, we could probably point to other things like uh, maybe you didn't get enough sleep that week, whatever. Other overly stressful patterns are kicking in and revealing themselves. That's what's so cool about heart rate training is... If you're stressed, 
acutely stressed for whatever reason. You just uh, came from a traffic altercation, show up at the running track and start jogging. You will see an elevated heart rate for all manner of stress factors. If you uh, wake up in the morning and you had a crappy night's sleep and you strap on your heart watch and you head down the road uh, to assume your usual nine minute mile pace at your aerobic limit and you're starting to hear the beeper at nine minute 30 seconds, it's a manifestation of the stress factors in your life that are causing an elevated heart rate at that particular time. Also, interestingly enough, caffeine will do this. So if you like to wake up, have your morning coffee, read the paper, do the crossword puzzle, uh, tie your shoes and head out for a jog, perhaps the uh, stimulatory effect of caffeine will represent in an elevated heart rate. And that's meaning that the uh, stress impact of the workout is greater because it's being combined with a central nervous system stimulant. Interesting. So the heart rate doesn't lie, and it's good to honor that and adjust your training pace. Man, I wouldn't even worry about your training pace unless you're doing a math test, which happens once every three weeks maybe. It doesn't matter what pace you're running at unless you're in a bloody race. Right now we're just training the body to build and progress to a high fitness level so that you can test yourself here and there with racing events. Um, here's Mike asking a question. Both you and Dr. Maffetone has, have suggested the maximum duration for a training run should be roughly two and a half hours. Uh, I don't recall ever suggesting that to anyone in my whole life, and I'm not sure if Maffetone did. I believe he has written some things in his book uh, referencing a time goal if you're preparing for uh, a race of a certain duration. So I will have to uh, reject the premise of the question, and we'll try to uh, carry on and get some insights out. Running is much more taxing than biking. Is there a comparable maximum duration training ride? So he wants to uh, establish maximum durations for running and cycling. And these are entirely dependent upon your uh, performance goals, as well as personal preference and how much time you have available to do such things. I don't think there's an upper limit where going over is going to cause a problem. In fact, over-distance training has been proven uh, by the results of the greatest endurance athletes in the world in every sport for over 50 years as highly effective. So some of these marathon racers will go over 26 miles in training uh, as, a, as a training strategy. Uh, the Tour de France riders will train over 100 miles day after day after day. And uh, some of the stages in the Tour are shorter or the same distance. So I really can't say anything about upper limits. And I used to love getting out there and doing seven-hour bike rides at a comfortable aerobic heart rate, getting strong in the hills and sustaining these uh, strong wattage output over long-duration climbs, not exceeding my aerobic maximum, not 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 trashing myself on a seven-hour ride, but having a wonderful aerobic training session that would translate directly into improved peak performance at a 40K all-out time trial. Yes, a seven-hour workout was the key to racing faster over an all-out hour time trial. Now, back to Mike's question. Um, because biking is much less stressful than running, yeah, there probably is some factor that you could plug in. Again, depends on your fitness level and your background, but let's say for a triathlete who's trying to be equally competent in both sports, yeah, let's guess that a one-hour run 
let's say at maximum aerobic heart rate is probably uh, equivalent in what would you call it the stress impact of doing a bike ride of an hour and 40 minutes something like that it's a total guess i don't know how you would measure that but it's obvious that uh, running is more physically stressful than cycling and you can compare uh, apples to oranges by using the heart rate so one hour exercise at 125 heartbeats per minute is going to look like who knows what to the athlete it could be a stand-up paddle it could be an hour run if you're a fit athlete it could be an hour brisk walk if you're not that fit uh if you're a great cyclist and you don't run at all you might be able to bang for an hour at a pretty ambitious speed and then if someone asked you to run for an hour at the same heart rate you'd have to jog walk Okay, so that's our consistent variable that we can measure the stress impact of the workout is heart rate. But time duration, good good point, good question that we have an hour training session at 125 heartbeats per minute, but arguably a run could be more physically stressful than a bike ride because you're not fighting gravity when you're cycling nor when you're swimming. So that's the only factor to put in there is that uh, that gravity and that impact trauma contributing to arguably a more stressful workout, even though it's the same duration of time at the same heart rate. Another question from Mike. I would think that building the aerobic base for running will help your cycling base and vice versa. If cycling is easier on the body than running and our goal during base is to develop, is to develop a solid aerobic base, would it make sense to spend more time cycling? That is, if I have an hour available for training, does my aerobic system develop the same from cycling or running? Uh, yes, your aerobic system will develop pretty similarly, and all we have left to consider is the specificity of training concept, where if you're trying to perform as a cyclist, the best way to get fitter is to pedal the bicycle, and your running can make a significant contribution due to the cross-training effect, but there's no substitute for a sport-specific training. Uh, so we're going to just kind of throw that all into the mix with cross-training, realizing that we're getting fitter and fitter aerobically no matter what we do. Guess what also is included? Shh, don't tell anybody. Sauna. Oh my gosh, it's true. Sitting in a bloody hot sauna and sweating profusely, relaxing, enjoying yourself, gives a cardiovascular training effect a significant cardiovascular training effect. You become better at processing oxygen, circulating blood through the cardiovascular system. Read Dr. Rhonda Patrick's detailed written report for free at foundmyfitness.com about how sauna enhances the training effect of cardiovascular workouts. Now, that's a little different than saying, go sit in the sauna every day and you'll go uh, get on the podium in your neighborhood 10K. But when you pair sauna exposure with your typical aerobic exercise patterns and uh, high-intensity workouts, you will enhance the training effect. You will get fitter because you're using the sauna. Uh, don't believe me? Put on your heart rate monitor and go see what your heart's going to be working at when you're in the sauna. So you're getting a cardiovascular training effect. I haven't uh, done this myself, but I'm wondering if I would exceed my maximum aerobic heart rate. I know somebody emailed me that question. I'm not sure if it's on the question list here, but that's pretty interesting, huh? If you're going in the sauna... 
I've been able to get mine up to 212 degrees now. <laughs> and what I do is I go in there and I do a set of 30 push-ups and 30 squats right away. So I'm pretty much sweating minutes after I get in there. And then I'm profusely sweating after only a few minutes. Yeah, go check out almostheaven.com. They have these home use saunas where you can install a very uh, small size, convenient barrel shaped sauna in your backyard or even in your garage uh, for an affordable price. And I'm so happy with this thing. It's awesome. I use it every single day. It's the only way to make it through winter. I love pairing it with workouts. And I do feel like, and this has also been validated by the uh, information in Dr. Patrick's report and other science that you experience less next day muscle soreness by using the sauna after conducting high intensity workouts that might otherwise contribute to soreness. It's just this loosening relaxation effect on your entire body. So much fun and good for your cardiovascular system. So that was a little aside because uh, Mike was asking if running helps cycling and cycling helps running vice versa. Okay, next is from Ward. Would you please comment on the efficacy of the 100-up drill of the great Walter George and recently made popular by Christopher McDougall, the author? Is this a good way to build, build both foot and leg strength for running and to develop good running form? Ding, ding, ding. That's the question of the month, man. Thank you so much for calling attention to that. You got to go. Your assignment after the show is to go Google this dude named Walter George. And he was from the late 1800s and he destroyed the world records for the mile run and other distances. He was an absolute phenom. Uh, back in his day, I believe his best time was a 412 in the mile in the 1880s. Oh my gosh, today's high school runners bashing their brains out like I did years ago trying to get down into the teens. My best time was 419. So this dude with the handlebar mustache and the crazy long tight striped pants and the button down shirt with the fluffy collar kicked my butt in the 1880s. It's mind blowing to consider that this guy came out of that era and was throwing down a 412 mile. Yeah, so good, interesting stuff about him on the internet. And he was uh, uh, working in a print shop. That was his career. So he didn't have time to go put in uh, 50 miles a week or whatever today's uh, elite high school miler or quality college miler is doing to get down to that uh, precious uh, zone of, you know, under 415. So he did this drill where he'd basically run in place and try to... Uh, flex his foot off the ground and clear the opposite knee with sort of a high knee stride and then land back in the same place. And it's a fabulous drill to build explosive propulsive force with each stride, getting a more efficient foot strike and more efficient power source with each landing, uh, and also develop the flexibility, mobility, uh, promote and cement good running form into your central nervous system. So yes, running in place is a fantastic drill and it will contribute to your fitness. Same with swinging a golf club in the air. Uh, as my golf guru, Christopher Smith says all the time, you can practice swing in front of a mirror and hone good nervous system function. Uh, he doesn't call it muscle memory. It's really more like brain memory of what a good golf swing is. And it can have as good or better impact on, uh, 
refining and perfecting your technique than bashing a bunch of balls at the driving range. Because when you go to the driving range, yes, it's more fun than just swinging through the air in the corner of your office, but you're kind of distracted by the flight of the ball and you might be getting some weird thoughts uh, to adjust your swing based on the impact of the last five shots. So working in front of a mirror and cementing good technique is really, really important for golf. Now, would you think so for running? Because running such sort of a, a moderate technique sport, the answer is yes. And technique is super important to running. You can lose so much energy. You can waste so much energy. Even though your heart is strong and your lungs are breathing the air and you're pumping and, and expending a lot of energy, the cyclists would call it watts. You know, you're putting a lot of watts into the pedal stroke. Uh, but for runners, and you see this at any marathon on the sideline from mile 20 to mile 26, they still have a fair amount of gas in the tank but their form is breaking down due to uh, inferior technique to begin with or to muscular fatigue due to an overly narrow training program where they have not done any box jumps, jumps or single leg squats or any of the mobility, flexibility stuff that's touted so highly by Brian McKenzie, Kelly Starrett, CrossFit Endurance, Mobility Wad, all those total fitness things that marathon runners sometimes uh, sacrifice in their obsession with mileage. And therefore, every time they take a stride and put energy into a forward motion, some of that impact is going into the cement rather than being transferred into uh, propulsive takeoff. So back to the question about Walter George doing his 100 ups. That's like 100 uh, uh, steps running in place. When you get good at that, you transfer that skill and that beautiful technique, that running like a deer, uh, light on your feet, quick on the ground and quick off the ground is the way to describe it. Get it? Are you getting me here? Quick on the ground and quick off the ground. So in other words, your return to your next step is like a whip. It's like a, a you're like you're pedaling a bicycle rather than allowing the leg to extend behind you and spending too much time off the ground. You want to get back onto the ground for the next stride very quickly. And when your foot hits the ground, you want to pretend that it's hot lava and explode right off the ground as soon as possible. Okay? Quick on the ground, quick off the ground like a bicycle. And that's what the 100 up drill is all about. And we're producing a wonderful series of videos where I can give you lessons on this running technique instruction and write about it. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Mark's Daily Apple content. Here's a question from Brian. I don't think it's Brian, our audio master but it's regarding the keto diet. So it's definitely not from Brian because Brian knows everything about the keto diet. He would never have a question, but this Brian does. Can you share what a day or two in the life of Brad's keto eating looks like? No. Next question. Uh, George says, just kidding, guys. Here's the thing. I have landed upon what works best for me, and it seems to be a quite spontaneous and intuitive eating pattern where I'm not immersed into a regimented uh, protocol where every single day I wake up and have the same thing at the same time. So I am a fan of intermittent fasting, of course, been writing about it and doing it and extolling the virtues of it for a long time. But these events happen in a spontaneous manner rather than a regimented manner. In particular, 
I no longer go every single day waiting until 12 noon to consume my first meal. Even though that's an excellent health practice and has many measures of effectiveness, on other days, I feel like eating a large delicious breakfast or I'll prepare my super nutrition green smoothie as soon as I wake up just because. And yes, it has some correlation to my workout energy output, particularly trying to recover from uh, the high-intensity workouts. I will make what might be considered a devoted effort or a concerted effort to consume more calories over the next 24 to 36 hours. Sometimes these calorie consumption increases happen spontaneously, such as an evening popcorn binge with a ton of butter and salt and olive oil on the popcorn. And that's really not part of a a centerpiece of the keto diet, but it is for my keto style diet. And interestingly enough, and I will give you some food examples too, as I'm rambling. Interestingly enough, when I was strict keto for that 140-day period and testing my blood so frequently that I developed scar tissue on my finger from getting the readout every single day, quite often I was below the widely stated keto threshold of 0.5 millimoles per milliliter in my blood. Uh, no matter what I tried, you know, it was hardly eating any carbohydrates. I'd been fasting for long periods and then I pricked my finger and it says 0.3 or 0.4. And it was kind of uh, weird to experience. Uh, there's some reasons for that. They're detailed in the book, Keto Reset Diet. Dr. Kate Shanahan calls it ketone flux, whereby I'm making whatever level of ketones I need to be burning at that particular time. And it might not register high on a blood meter, but it still meant I was uh, a member of the keto club. I was welcome into the clubhouse and I was making whatever ketones I needed. Now, here we are, oh, a year and a half, two years later, where I'm no longer in these prolonged, uh, regimented carbohydrate restriction under 50 grams per day every single day uh, to make sure I'm keto. And I will randomly prick my finger. One of them was even the next day after an evening popcorn binge, and my blood ketone reading was up at 07 So for some reason, I was making a lot of ketones, proving that I was a keto-adapted individual, even though I'd had, in recent past, uh, high-carbohydrate intake meals, snacks, whatever. In any case, I would not recommend copying anybody, uh, especially me, but I will put in a plug for a more intuitive approach to eating where we eliminate that variable of orthorexia and overly stressful dietary transformation or dietary efforts. We want to make sure that we enjoy our lives, that we don't get stressed or stuck into patterns or ruts, that we have a great honor and respect for our natural appetite. So if you're craving certain foods, um, those are things that you might want to pay attention to and enjoy yourself. That said, I also favor uh, a very strict and zero-tolerance policy for toxic health-compromising, nutrient-deficient foods. I detest when people say, hey, when it comes to diet, everything moderation, uh, little cop-outs like that, hey, you only live once, might as well enjoy yourself once in a while. Um, look, when we're applying it to the disastrous health consequences of having uh, a loosely restricted diet where you're able to uh, make a decision to consume stuff that has uh, an instant disturbance in healthy cardiovascular function, for example, when we're talking about a refined, high polyunsaturated vegetable oil, and these are so prevalent in the modern diet, 
Dr. Andrew Weil says that 20% of all calories in the modern diet come from soybean oil. Uh, Dr. Kate Shanahan says that 40% of all calories consumed in a restaurant, whether it's fast food all the way up to a quality restaurant, come from refined vegetable oils. So I want on one side of my mouth to be really strict and have zero tolerance for crap to read every single label of every product that I consume so I don't buy a bag of walnuts innocently and look on the back and see that they were treated with canola oil, which is a common occurrence. People are bringing home stuff they think is healthy. I'm looking in the cupboards of my friends and relatives who have an extreme interest and devotion to health, and they've been snowed deceptive labeling and marketing practices. So cut all the junk out of your diet and then open yourself up to a wondrous array of possibilities. Uh, Brian, the Brian that does the audio and is the keto king, you can find him at Keto Reset Diet. We're working on a cookbook right now for dudes that don't want to do uh, detailed, uh, particular nitpicky recipes. So you're going to find a lot of the stuff that we like to eat in there. And it's a pretty fun project because you know what? It doesn't have to be fancy. You can open up a can of sardines, uh, stir fry some kale, and there you go with one of Brian's power breakfasts. I have a bunch of snacks and kind of, uh, uh, you would call it a dessert treat, except for it's high in natural nutritious fats and low in sugar. And so some of that stuff comes into play when I'm in a social setting and wanting to share uh, my enthusiasm for uh, low-carbohydrate keto eating. Uh, but generally speaking, I'll have some days where I'm engaged in morning fasting, other days where I'm doing the super nutrition green smoothie, other days where I'm having a big, beautiful omelet in the morning or bacon and eggs, or sometimes I'll do this uh, uh, primal oatmeal that's a blend of coconut milk, eggs, ground up nuts, uh, and a ton of almond butter or peanut butter stirred in and heated up on the stove, and it comes out to the consistency of oatmeal. So those are some breakfast options. Uh, of course, eat a lot of salads, eat a lot of stir-fried vegetables, and when it comes to meat and, of course, the controversial subject of meat, I'm becoming more and more aware of the need to be highly selective with our meat consumption and stay away from the processed stuff that has caused so much concern and grief and outrage in the uh, vegan vegetarian community, the way we raise these animals and the uh, nutrient devoid uh, nature of their flesh. So when I'm eating meat, I am going for the very, very best. I'm getting my buffalo mail order from Wild Idea Buffalo, the healthiest, cleanest, most sustainably raised buffalo. Hey, go visit the website if you're interested in health and learning about meat. Uh, these buffalo are raised on the Great Plains of South Dakota. They've been there for uh, only 130,000 years, I think, something, or is it 80,000 years? Anyway, do you know how many buffalo are harvested in America each year? Around 60,000. Most of those buffalo are fed sort of a hybrid where they're getting some grain in their diet, a little more of a processing. But Wild Idea Buffalo, the O'Brien family, family business out there, these buffalo are flowing on the open range, eating their natural diet. They're sustainably harvested, that's the term they use, like five at a time, right in their home environment and sent off to uh, get ready for uh, processing. So they had a great life. There's no stress and there's no anguish at the end, unlike the feedlot cattle who is squeezed into these uh, manufacturing plants. Do you know what happens to an animal who's stressed at the moment that they die? 
Do you want to ask a hunter that? This is new information. I was so fascinated to learn this, that if you're a hunter and you get uh, not the cleanest shot on your deer or whatever, and the deer's wounded and running and running for their lives and then collapse, you don't eat that animal because the tissues are full of stress hormones and it doesn't taste right. So hunters get a clean shot and taking the animal down right away only, or they will not eat the animal. And then we have the feedlot cattle who are screaming and yelling and getting traumatized, and then boom, they're punched in the head, and they're down, and their tissues are full of stress hormones, thinking that they would taste like crap. But, of course, uh, the, most of the food we buy is flavored artificially so that it tastes like beef. Read the book Fast Food Nation. Uh, it's been out there for a long time. Eric Schlosser, I think it's probably 15, 20 years old, talking about how the fast food products that we get have been so heavily processed and frozen and transported and stored that the hamburger that you eat at McDonald's or Wendy's or Carl's Jr. would ordinarily taste so little like a true hamburger that they have to chemically flavor it with hamburger style flavoring to make sure it's palatable. Not so for the buffalo coming right to your door. So we got 40,000 buffalo, 60,000 buffalo and 40 million cattle are killed each year in the feedlot processing program. So I'm trying to go upscale here, man. Why don't you too? When it comes to fish, of course, I'm looking for the wild-caught salmon from uh, nearby, from uh, North American waters. Stay away from any and all fish that come imported from Asia due to concerns about lax chemical regulations and polluted waters. Of course, the smash hits are the best fish to eat. These are the oily, cold-water fish, and that's the acronym to remember. It stands for sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring. So those are your can't-miss bets, uh, getting the good meats from uh, mail-order providers or the quality grocers, and so great to see places like uh, Nugget Market in the Sacramento area, Sprouts, I think, is nationwide or maybe at least West Coast, Whole Foods, having that devotion to getting quality meat rather than feedlot meat. So I would take that hardline stance against eating uh CAFO meat, concentrated animal feeding operations, and go for quality meat, but with that vegetables being the main emphasis of your diet. And when it comes to fruits, uh, stick with in season, go for it in season, slam those berries in the summertime. But in the winter, we are not genetically optimized to consume a lot of fruit or a lot of carbohydrate. That's just our ancestral example. So we want to try to make most of our fruit consumption seasonal. Uh, you know what other thing I eat since I'm back to that question? Lots of dark chocolate, man. <laughs> I love this stuff. It's got so many health benefits. It's got one of the highest antioxidant values of any food, an assortment of other uh, nutritional, cognitive function, mood-elevating benefits, and I'm definitely become a dark chocolate snob, so I select the highest quality, most cleanest manufactured brands. It's called Bean to Bar. So if you look on the label of your dark chocolate bar, you want to see cacao beans as the first ingredient. That implies that this company took the raw material, the beans, and then roasted them and processed them and put them through their uh, mechanizations to come out with a dark chocolate bar, as opposed to when you're dealing with a lot of commercial brands or the lower-priced brands, you will see things like chocolate liqueur, cocoa mass, 
the word chocolate or other things as the lead ingredients. This implies that they bought some commodity products like the already mixed liquid barrels of chocolate and then threw them uh, into their uh, machine and put a label on it. So bean to bar and also fair trade designation on your chocolate bar. That means the farmer got a fair price for the beans. We know who the farmer was, and you can protect yourself from the guilty conscience of buying a chocolate bar that most likely came from child-slash-slave labor in some of these poorly regulated equatorial countries where you're getting a bar for $1.59 at Trader Joe's. I used to love that bar, too, that dark chocolate, 85%, so inexpensive compared to all the other stuff, but then you learn more and more about chocolate, and I invite you to go over to the Get Over Yourself podcast channel and listen to my great show with chocolate enthusiast and expert Terea Rodriguez, where we talk through all the labeling and the distinctive factors that you're looking for when you're trying to find a quality bar, including how to eat dark chocolate. Oh my gosh, I used to just chomp on the stuff. You know how you're supposed to do it as a connoisseur? You take off one square and put it on your tongue and allow it to dissolve on your tongue and your palate. And it takes quite a few minutes, but you savor the flavor for a long time. So if you see anybody chomping on dark chocolate, correct them immediately and help them become a connoisseur. How about that for a wrap-up? Wow, we covered everything on this show. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Hope it was valuable. As always, send your questions, comments, feedback to info at primalendurance.fit and go check out the Mastery Course. This is the time of year to do it, to make a massive change, starting with a comprehensive education for how to get everything dialed for the impending competitive season. Right now, you should be training at aerobic heart rates, taking it easy easy, doing the best you can to be healthy overall, just less energy output in general during the winter months, unless you're listening in Australia and then you're getting ready for the racing season. But it's a great time to settle in, educate yourself, listen to all the experts and the great athletes that I have interviewed for this Primal Endurance Mastery course. It's everything brought into one. I guarantee you'll have a wonderful experience going through all the lessons and the commentary aligned with the chapters in the book. So you get a complete picture of how to build a base, how to monitor your aerobic heart rate, how to introduce strength and intensity how to eat properly and integrate that primal style eating pattern successfully rather than bombing out because you're not eating enough carbs and you're blaming it on this or that. Everything's over at primalendurance.fit. And if you're on the fence and want to find out more of what the course is about, uh, you can do this sign up and get, I think it's a series of nine videos for free, just talking through the different aspects of the course, a little tidbit uh, takeaways. And also, uh, to further incentivize you, you can type in the magical top secret code BRAD20, B-R-A-D-20, and get 20% off your course enrollment. Thank you for supporting the podcast at whatever location. <laughs> and off and running we go. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table? 
It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. Oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.